Hey everybody, welcome to the Exit Podcast. This is Dr. Bennett, joined here by John Taylor. John works in manufacturing here in the States, and he and I have had some extended conversations about the state of American labor, the quote-unquote labor shortage that uh, is, I think, maybe rapidly drawing to a close. Wanted to get him on the show to talk about his experiences. He's got this very interesting vantage point that I think maybe nobody else does at least nobody else who's willing to um, to look at it the way that we're looking at things. So welcome to the show, John. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. You and I, I <laughs> you and I have run a, come across a cross paths in a, in a lot of interesting different ways. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's talk. Great. So first of all, I, I you had an interesting take on the, you said, you said once that the immigrants lower wages people and the kids just don't want to work people are talking past each other. And what did you mean by that? Yeah. So what I mean by that is, you know, let me, let me break down kind of each side. So immigrants, lower wages, this is like an economic fact, right? <laughs> right. Like if you think of labor as a product, then if you, you know, if you increase supply, then the price is going to go down and that's what we yeah. do. And this is, and in fact, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think it was uh, Steve Saylor who said that, like Mexico recognizes this when they have a when they have a labor surplus. That's when they like deliberately turn on the hose. Yeah, <laughs> they turn on the faucet and send a bunch of, send a bunch of their uh, their poor folks, poorer folks, to uh, to the United States. And so it yeah, like it's a mathematical fact that immigrants do lower wages, but what you if you work in blue collar jobs and this includes i think the trades i think it includes um manufacturing that i work in it includes a lot of uh, retail and re like retail distribution like warehousing which is a huge but it's not just not just beyond beyond the big players like walmart and uh and amazon there's a ton of just retail warehousing that's associated with just-in-time logistics that goes on in america and if you live if you live in the suburbs you might see it if you live in the city you almost certainly don't see it um but you have these like pockets all over america of just these like warehouse communities you know, if you, you know what i'm talking about have you seen what i'm talking about you mean like sort of communities built around an amazon hub no, well they, i think when they're not usually built or it's not usually the communities built around it what'll happen is you know amazon or walmart will move into a a, some small town that has the space to build one of these like commercial parks and you know when walmart crops up then like they're just they're you know the distributors it was really it's really like the toyota production system like toyota you know builds a factory and then everybody else builds a factory around them you know all of their suppliers build their factories around them and the same kind of thing happens in in distribution warehousing where you'll have walmart or amazon has a warehouse and then there's all these like little satellite warehouses. And then that kind of becomes the industry of the community. But it, it you usually crop up around existing communities, but you'll find them all over like rural America. I mean, that's like, that's what Bentonville, Arkansas is, right? Walmart headquarters. Yeah. It's a little town. It was already there. But, you know, there's enough space to just build these, you know, mile, you know, giant square, you know, square mile after square mile of warehousing. Yeah, um, we've, we've got a friend in the group who 
found out recently that his like family line back to I think it was like the 1700s at least uh is is like Bentonville people and so now he's <laughs> so now he's on this crusade to like uh to to defeat and destroy Walmart as uh, <laughs> As foreign interlopers well um, they're 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 fairly popular there <laughs> yeah yeah they are well liked uh because they, they they bring a lot of money they, but um yeah they have brought a lot of money so if you work in any of these blue collar industries then if you especially like people who people who have been in there you know older in their careers the uh the boomers and the gen xers who who came up in these industries what they what they see is that there's tons of opportunity because we talk about like um well I, so i think a lot of what a lot of what um what gets classified as privilege is really just cultural assimilation because some of the higher function jobs in in these industries like like maintenance right so you've, you've got the people who just scan boxes all day and it takes about 30 seconds to teach somebody to do that. But somebody has to maintain all the conveyor belts. Uh, somebody has to maintain all the robotics. Uh, some of that stuff is done by engineers, but some of it can be done by, you know, on the job training of technicians and stuff. And all of those jobs almost exclusively are held by Americans. I don't mean whites. Okay. I mean, people who grew up in this country and can read an instruction book. Yeah. who pick up on all the millions of social cues that it takes to do higher level learning, right? And so if you're, if you're a boomer and a Gen Xer and you're a mechanic who's making, you know, 30, sometimes $40 an hour, uh, plus some significant overtime usually uh, in these industries, and you look, at, you look at a kid coming out of high school is like, you know, all these immigrants taking our jobs and it's like, well, the job is there. But if you were to tell one of these kids, well, like come come start out packing boxes and you'll move into a good job really fast the problem with saying that is like well why if if everybody could do that why isn't everybody doing it and the answer is because a lot of the immigrant labor isn't uh isn't really capable of moving into those jobs because of the language barrier and almost as much the the cultural barrier just not knowing how to navigate or the kind of organizations that exist in Western countries or in advanced countries. And so, um, but the problem is that if you say that, like, well, you know, come, come work in my factory and in six months I could have you working a really good job. That sounds like, that sounds like discrimination, right? Like, you, oh, you're going to move ahead of all these, you know, these immigrants right away. It's like, it's not like anybody's doing that deliberately. And I think um, the, the problem with it is, how do I how do I articulate this? The problem with that is that is the, the the whole construct of disparate impact, right? Yeah. Because if if you point out that immigrants are at a natural disadvantage because of language and cultural barriers, this I guess like corporate America's are, I mean you, maybe you can weigh in on this, but like I think corporate America's response is like well that's not fair and it shouldn't be that way. But well, yeah, how yeah, is it I mean, how is how is it supposed to be? Like, if, if I need you to read a technical manual on how this machine operates, then, you know, is it incumbent upon, cor like, American corporations to translate these into every language and to make it as available to these other people? So it's this, like, it's this secret that you can't let out because if you, it would sound discriminatory or might sound racist to say, 
if you're an American, you can come into this factory and you'll do very, very well. But from the outside, it looks like you're going to get, you know, so, you know, $14 an hour to tape boxes shut. So do you think that, like, I guess, I guess in this, in this version of this vision of, of, of the way that like the, uh, the system really operates and, and we're, we're looking at like downscale whites who feel uh, really sort of left out of, of all this money and who are, you know, the, the opioid crisis and, and just sort of uh, dying on the vine. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a problem that could be solved by sort of co- finding a way to communicate that or is it something else? <sighs> that's tough, man. Um, so, well, I, in the, so th- th- this is going to sound, you know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of the best, um, a lot of the, the best thinking on immigration is done by Steve Saylor. So I apologize if I draw too much on him. He talks about Raj Chetty's uh, research on economies in in rural america like the 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 research that he did on like income by zip code and he said that like basically the best thing that can happen to a poor white area is you know for some big manufacturer or some big factory to move in and yet that's not anything that you can actually really do much about so i do think that so part of it it's probably both right that's the that's the classic like business guy answer. Well, it depends. Um, well, it depends. I think part of the move to the service economy is is irreversible because unless we do something huge about immigration, nobody is ever going to make a living as a waiter ever again. Nobody is ever going to make a, a you know a decent living as like trash collection or. Um, you know, cleaning services, those are, and I don't know, I don't know if they ever were. I'm not an, I'm not an economist. I don't know if anybody ever like raised a family as a janitor. I assume it happened at some point. I don't know, but I don't think, um, I don't think that's ever going to be solved because one, there's, I think, I think the, the economy has transitioned too much to those kinds of jobs to provide good, like good jobs for everybody and two corporate america is never going to let that happen so you go to any of these you go to any of these warehouses big warehouses or whatever they never have more than like two-thirds of their employees are full-time they they keep at least like 10 to 30 percent and that i mean that's at least a lot of places are like 90 are third-party labor which is where Walmart or Amazon outsources the recruiting, but really it's the risk of hiring illegal immigrants, right? So if, if Walmart were get, to get caught faking I-9s, it would be huge, would be enormous scandal, right? Like they use, you verify and everything. Yeah. But if, if, every, if every small town that has one of these Amazon warehouses has a cottage industry temp agency and they're faking I-9s, and that happens 3,000 times over America, well, then right. like 60% of Amazon's labor can be illegal immigrants, and Amazon bears basically no liability because what are you going to – who's 
which of these reporters, you know, which of these like mainstream media reporters is going to go out and like catch all these people. First of all, they have no will to do it. They, you know, they're on the other side of this, right? They, sure. they don't, they don't want them found out. And even if, if they did, it would be, you know, the, uh, the scope of it. I mean, you'd have to have like some kind of project Veritas thing to go out and show how all of these temp agencies repeatedly and deliberately are hiring illegal labor. Even though it's it's in the contract, right? Like Amazon does not like deliberately, theoretically, pay for illegal immigrant labor, but they do. Right. And they do everywhere. So I think there, there's a cap that corporate America is willing to put on this. But I think the other side is, is a, it, there is maybe a messaging solution where you can get the word out and say, you know, there are still some good trade, you know, there are some good trade jobs out there and you might have to start out at the bottom. Part of it's the college, the college lie too, right? We tell every, we tell every smart kid in America that if they have any kind of brains at all, they need to be going to college. And then there's just not enough good, there's, there's only so many fake email jobs out there for these kids to do. But on top of that, they've now been conditioned to believe that if they don't take a college fake email job, they're not smart. Right. Some of these, some of these guys that can like the, you work as mechanics that, you know, they, they don't write professionally, you know, they, they probably, they, their, their literacy skills are, are poor um, because they didn't excel in school or whatever, but they have the mechanical mind to, to do the job. Some of these guys make almost as much money as I do. Yeah. Because once you factor in, you know, they, they've got a pay rate, plus they get stepped up, you know, based on how many years they've been doing it or certifications on particular machines, plus all the overtime that they get, you know, I'm a salaried employee. I don't get paid overtime. Then they get a bonus. If, if the facility meets a, a certain threshold, some of these guys make very, very good money doing it. Um, but you have to slog it out and you have to be willing. You have to humble yourself to take a job packing boxes for $14 an hour and hustle until you can say, Hey, can I go be one of the guys that works on the machines? Well, and those are, those are even the employment side of it. I think if you're, if you're a smart guy with some, some business sense and some good, some good, like acumen intuition for that kind of thing, entrepreneurship in the trades is a hugely powerful field to get into because there are so few like innovative types, business types, like there's, there's a lot of guys who are very skilled at what they do, but they haven't developed like the project management and the marketing side of things as much. And it, so, this is exactly, this is exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because when you tell, when you tell every, every analytically minded kid, well, you need to go to college, you need a college job. And, and there's this, there's a stigma on the intelligence of people in the trades then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. People shy away from those jobs. And so then the people who, you know, the, 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 it basically the only people who go into those jobs are the people who are forced into it. And sometimes yeah. it turns out to be like this very great, like, Oh, wow. You know, I, I had, you know, I graduated high school. I had no prospects. I wasn't going to go to college cause I'm not college bound. So I go and I get a, you know, I get a job at the local factory sweeping floors. I work my way up. Now I'm a mechanic. I make pretty decent money you know, but I'm not business minded and I was never college material, which is why I got forced into this job, right? Forced yeah. into it, but it's not that, it's not that bad, but the kids who could hack it at college 
are rarely going to take that path. And so, yeah, those, those kids that like, like those college skills, those soft skills of professional communication and some of the higher level analytics and stuff. Yeah. Like that doesn't make it into the trades because those people never took that path in the first place. Yeah. I mean, even just, I mean, this is another one of these like conversations that kind of can't happen in public, but I've had several of our guys who have been in the landscaping business be like, oh yeah, no, I charge a premium because um, I, I, I am able to speak English clearly. I am clean cut. I wear a polo and khakis. My truck is nice. Yeah. And uh, that ultimately makes a huge difference. And, and so people, yeah, I think, I think it just sort of generalizes to everything. If you're comparing yourself to, if you're, compa- if, if you're viewing your labor as a commodity, then yes, you, you will always be undercut, but it's not a commodity. Right. And, and, and so, so what we're saying, I think what you're saying, or what we're both saying that we're not, nobody's allowed to say is that your, your, your citizen privilege, right? Your citizenship privilege, having grown up in this country is a soft skill in and of itself, right? It's a, it is, it is a value, it is value added to have grown up here and just understand how things work. You know, like one of the things is like, we have some people, they're, they're wonderful people, right? But they come from a part of the world where they don't have, um, you know, they don't have the pressure in their water systems or they don't have the sewage systems, even in major cities to pull waste away, right? So there's a lot of places in the world where you don't dispose of toilet paper in the toilet, you dispose of it in a trash can. And these are like, some of these people are like college educated back home, you know, but they come here and they're like, they're throwing their toilet paper in the, in the trash can and like getting fired over it. And it's, I mean, is that like, is that fair? Like who's to say it's like, whatever, like, I don't know. Like there's nothing, there's fair, like fair is fair. Nothing is fair. Life isn't fair, but you know, we could as a country say, okay, well now it's okay to throw toilet paper in the trash if we wanted like go that route of like full on equality or yeah, I, you I, can simply, you can simply acknowledge that somebody that grows up here knows how our toilets work. It, that's one of a million little things that's going to make you a better employee in that country. I think, I think bringing back an attitude of deliberate assimilationism, like you know, you, yeah, you have to come here and you have to have our values and you have to do things the way we do them because that's how we do them here. I mean, that's an expectation in every other culture on the planet. And they so like, and the same people yeah. who get mad about the expectation here are also the people who are like, don't gentrify my neighborhood. Don't, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like yeah. It's, it's exactly like, the same. They're, 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 they're people who, you know, they eschew the, the ugly American who goes to another country and expects people to speak English. And, and, it, and this is, this is why I, I think this might be part of why you think I'm uniquely placed to, to talk about this is I, I do speak more than one language. I won't delve too much into that because I don't, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to maintain the privacy here, but I do speak more than one language and I can communicate with a lot of our workers. Um, I speak a couple of different languages. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I have this like unique insight where like, I'm, I'm very much not the ugly American. 
and yet I am full on ugly American in America. <laughs> you know? Right, right. <laughs> I don't I don't think that's unreasonable because I have done that. I have done it in a way that the you know the semester abroad in Barcelona uh, co-ed never <laughs> never did. You know, you know, somebody that travels the world for a couple of semesters and thinks they've seen it, like, no, like I I have lived in the the worst parts of some very bad places. Yeah. <laughs> and and then and then learned to have the humility to to see the world from their perspective and you know and do as Rome when in Rome. And yeah, and so they, I don't feel like I'm being imperial or racist or discriminatory by saying this is America and in America we do it this way and I'm going to prefer a candidate you know a job candidate or an employee who already understands that yeah I mean it's impossible to be imperialist in like Kansas if you're an American now I will I will say it gets stickier right when you when you talk about this within the citizenry right this is why like uh um yeah, I've heard people. I've heard people say that we should. One way to sort of get rid of racial differences in America would be to sort of <clears throat> go all in on this like citizenship or like you know American um, identity, you know, as a as a sort of like the in group, because really what we're talking about is the same thing that people complain about when they complain about privilege, right? That somebody who grows up in a wealthy white neighborhood just understands things about how the business world works, right? About how the upper class works that is inaccessible to someone who's poor and black. And so then there's preferential treatment for those jobs as well. So when when you when you apply that preference in the same way in the exact same way, you know, in America we would say that that is like explicitly racist. You know, I mean a a, a company would have a lawsuit on their hands if they said, well, this person knows how to do this and I don't really care that they grew up white. I just, I'm going to hire, I'm going to hire whoever can do it. Right. And I'm not going to pay attention to race at all. Well, um, again, I, you know. I mean, I, I, again, what that presupposes is that these things can't be taught or adopted. And um, if that, it, I mean, if that is the case, um then yeah, a lot of these inequalities are a lot stickier. But if basically, I, I think you can, I think you can make a case that like we should be teaching people explicitly how to climb the ladder the way the ladder is really climbed. <laughs> yeah, and well, yeah, and then let the yeah, chips yeah, yeah. fall. Yeah, that that there's there's some of that, and and you know, so the <laughs> the silver lining to this storm cloud of of mass immigration is that the more America balkanizes, the better it's going to get for America's native poor, black, black Americans in particular, right? Because whereas when America is just sort of like all native born um, and the, you know, the difference between the way a white person grows up and the way a black person grows up uh, is more meat is like more meaningful you know all all of this white you know, all these white privilege things things you learn and know and get brought into um, that you might not if you grew up poor and black those are going to matter less when it's more about can you even hold a basic conversation with the guy behind the counter yeah i think i think you see that a little <laughs> bit with the uh, with the uh, 
people's admiration for Tariq Nasheed and, and talking about like uh, American descendants of slavery or found, I think he calls them foundational black Americans that yeah. like, that like, you know, we, we have our problems, but we have some history together and, uh, and, and that matters. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to remember, uh, you, you might be able to help me with this. There was a, there was a, a black author during the, like either the Belle Epoque or the jazz age. He, he said he went to France because, you know, supposedly it was like more racially progressive. And, uh, and he, he, he suddenly realized how American he was because nobody cared about baseball. And, you know, they're like, I mean, like whites versus blacks in baseball in the early 20th century, like, oh my goodness, you know, it was, it was like, who's better, who can do it, you know? Um, it was right. a, you know, a great point of racial pride amongst both groups, right? Both groups were convinced that they had the better ball players, and that has obviously played out <laughs> in, in, in a certain way, right? Like the 1936 but, uh, Olympics, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and, you know, he, he goes to France and, like, nobody cares about baseball. Um, nobody really cares about jazz, you know? And uh, I think and now so you suddenly... go overseas. I think now you go overseas and you realize nobody cares about racism. Like, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or uh, what I mean by that is like, <laughs> is like we are the most obsessed with not being racist. And like, literally, I, I, I've said this once or twice. Like, you know, your your most racist uncle in America, literally nothing that he's ever said is possibly worse than like the median Chinese person on race. Like it's, there's no contest. No, <laughs> well, you know, and that's, and that, you know, that, that right there, like that's another great example of, of uh, that's also a, a, to tie this in. That's another great example of like a soft skill. So for better or for worse, we very much highly value this um, pluralism, right? Like racial pluralism in America. And you know, I deal with this every day, like racial cliques uh, that that operate, that scheme back and forth against each other, like people trying to get each other fired because I want I want this part of the factory or I want this part of the warehouse to to be all people from my country. And when when they hire on a new temp or somebody that's not from my ethnic group, like I will I will set them up, like literally, like sabotage them in their work um tell them so to they, do things so, wrong that kind of thing yeah exactly tell yeah tell them to do things wrong stash stolen goods on their <laughs> like in their lunch bag um and so yeah like even, even native born americans who um you know even poor native native born poor whites poor blacks like it, to, to a certain extent they are far more above that um just because of our history over the last 70 years or so at least um far more above that than a lot of other people or at least they know that like they're supposed to be above that yeah at least at least they know that they're they're far more um conscious of the consequences and probably and, and far more hesitant to um to deliberately engage in that kind of behavior yeah and i mean uh, i i think also about not just sort of racial or tribal favoritism but just like personal like oh yeah no i totally um let my cousin come and 
and have some stuff for free or whatever like the the expectation (laughs) of that and other you know what i mean like that to them they're like well of course yeah yeah no no that's a yeah that's a really that's a really good point and i i think this is just um you know i think it is this this is one of the probably another thing that that can't be said that's an important part of this conversation is american blacks are far more assimilated into european culture than we give that we give them credit for right uh, because it's it's bad to be colonized right we're all about decolonization you'll never decolonize we have we have nordic names for our days of the week and latin names for our months like i don't know I don't know who, who came up with this idea of like decolonize or whatever, but like you're, you're de- you ain't decolonizing shit. <laughs> like yeah. There's no, there's no yeah. going back. And um, sorry, we were, we're gonna have to like cut this out or something. Cause I'm trying to remember the, the, the thought that I was, we were, we were talking about, Oh, Oh, like nepotism towards my ethnic group or whatever. So, you know, the idea of just sort of like the basics of like a free market um honoring contracts you know uh one of the things i deal with a lot is like the the western christian ideal of of personal honesty and integrity as an ideal versus um like shame versus guilt right shame guilt shame culture versus guilt culture christianity and the western world more broadly is a guilt culture that that where um you know being right and doing right is about your own honor and your personal integrity versus other cultures where it's really just about whether or not you get caught and how it might reflect on the group. Uh, <laughs> there's, one per, there's one person that, that I work with uh, from, uh, from one of these you know, very shame-oriented cultures where if this person gets something wrong uh, or if, if they see somebody else getting something wrong, they will very publicly put this other person especially if they're not especially if they're not of the same ethnic group they'll put the failure the personal failure on a big giant display i mean like shouting about it literally shouting about it um you know how could you do this and this and that and then if it's ever revealed that it's actually their fault it'll be like we as a team failed today (laughs) right you know and uh and because and those are those are things that like really that really get there they seem small but they really get in the way of operating a business the way it's supposed to operate in this sort of lowercase l liberal free market society yeah uh, and it's there and it's the reason that and this is this goes into something i, I think a little bit broader uh which i i think some of the more moderately minded people on immigration i i there's I, I believe there's a little bit of nihilism involved where it's like, well, we can we just can't compete with China anyway. You know, we even if we brought all these jobs back or whatever, there's no competing with China. So we may as well just go all in on the global market and just being just being a global market, you know, start to finish for for people and and goods. Um, but what I think we underestimate is how difficult it is to really to really imitate um the system of of capitalism and and own ownership that came out of christianity i know that makes it sound like i'm some kind of texan you know bringing 
bringing Christianity and capitalism together. But but it, it, it is true that the idea of personal sovereignty, personal accountability to God, um, a personal relationship with God, that really is the root of the, the way that we developed our economic systems in Europe. And imitating that when you don't believe in any of that is very right. is a lot difficult. And I, I, I think a lot of Americans overestimate how capable China and India and a lot of these other countries really, really are to compete with us. They're kind of, in my opinion, they're kind of paper tigers. And Donald Trump proved it and the Chinese knew it and we didn't. Donald Trump punched them in the freaking face and they were on their heels. And every American is like, what is this guy doing? He's going to crush our economy. And China was like scared to death of Donald Trump. And we weren't. And right. it's, 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 it's insane to me that we, we can't figure this out. We get, uh, you know, we get supply everywhere I've worked, we get supplies and everybody knows, like, I, I don't know. I don't know how much the average American knows that like the stuff you get from China, like isn't as good. And even if it looks as good, it's like poison. <laughs> no, I'm saying like, like if you, like if you're Say buying more, yeah. clothes from them, you, you know, if you're like, well, you're buying clothes, right? Like they'll, they'll use chemicals to like make the clothes lay flat so that they, they come out looking ironed. Um, and it's like poison to your skin. You know, we, I work, I've worked in a couple of places where it's like, we're getting on ourselves for, um, for the way, like things I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to not delve into too much, like where specifically I work, but sure. when you, when you get raw materials from India and China, they're just not high quality. Like when we order something, when you order raw materials from Germany, it's just known that they're going to be good. Like it, Honestly, it's probably not even worth doing the quality checks because their quality checks are higher, like stricter than ours. And they would never even ship anything to us that couldn't pass our standards. Um, but you get stuff from China that's and India. Happened in, do you think that's happened in Japan? You mean like things going to Japan or things Japan sends us? Things coming from Japan having that level of QC. No, no, I think Japan is different and I don't know enough about Asia to tell you why um they they seem to have somehow adopted at least incorporated these systems in a way that that works um but china and india i don't i don't think have and uh i think if they become the world economic leaders that they want to be you will see things get crappier and i our, i think our our uh, our intuition is to blame it on ourselves again to like take personal responsibility for it but right. a lot of these a lot of bad a lot of bad things come out of china i mean even just look at is it like nine out of the 10 last like major epidemics in the world all came out of china right right But like you can't say anything you can't say anything about like why they can't seem to get their hygiene under control or their public health under control yeah, I mean it's it's We're way off topic. I'm sorry. No, no, it's fine. There's so many. There's so many like. Well, and, and so I I've spent time in the Middle East, um, and I, I think I'm I'm probably, I guess you call me like an Arabu, uh, the the Arab equivalent of a weeaboo. Um, I just found a lot. Wait, hold on, hold on. What does that mean? What does that mean? You have to explain this to the uninitiated. Oh, so, 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 I'm a so simple weeaboo. man, Bennett. A weeaboo, weeb. It's somebody who is weirdly obsessed with anime and all things Japanese. Okay. And so 
an Arabu would be the uh, uh, Lawrence uh, of Arabia was an Arabu. Oh, okay, okay, and, okay. Um, and you know, I, I, I would, uh, I would temper like basically by comparison with most of the guys that we hang out with, um, who who have a lot of contempt for those people. I find a lot to admire, and I, I definitely see like I go over there and I see how their emphasis on the personal and their shame culture and and the different ways that they take responsibility for things uh causes a lot of diseconomies and a lot of inefficiencies but i kind of also see that as like trade-offs like going back to the japanese the, the way that i used to compare it is like if you went over to uh jordan or syria and you were like, all right, we're going to introduce like American notions of time, American notions of like, uh, you know, you, you don't do favors for your friends. You hire the best man for the job yeah. or woman, you know? Yeah. Um, it would kind of be like the Japanese coming over here and being like, you're going to be here at 5 20 in the morning to do group calisthenics and then we're going to go drinking with the boss until 10 p.m <laughs> and like just this yeah. like 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 and, and and they'll be like well we we make way more money and like we're way successful like this system totally works it's very efficient um and we would just be like i don't care like i'm not gonna i'm not <laughs> yeah. gonna freaking do so, that so there's there's something there's, there's this like sci-fi novel that's been rolling around my head because of all this like thinking you know knowing, knowing that you and i were going to talk about this and it, the, the story i want to tell is like two basically two people who are completely blue-pilled on all of this like two two like totally you know like moderate left guys or or gals you know i'm not discriminating uh but like basically two people who like travel to a foreign planet that's like even more along the same like the same thing in extremis like i was thinking i'm thinking of like a race of aliens that like they eat their trash so that they don't pollute the earth you know and it's like i would never eat my trash you know and i you, you know even if i think i care about the earth there's no one in, like there's no one in the world that you know there's no conservationist or uh ecologist or or uh you know greenie on the earth who would like eat their trash and yeah. try to like bio biodegrade styrofoam and i think that's kind of how it <laughs> i think that's kind of no because i think that's kind of how it is right like people come here and it's like i'm not i'm gonna do this right and, and you know it, to, and to make the counter argument right to make like the multicultural argument there is more than one way to skin a cat right um yeah Cause you can wake up, you know, you can do your work at night. You can do it in the morning. It doesn't necessarily matter. Um, you can do your socializing before you can do it after there's, there's different ways of solving these problems, but it's all the, our, our cultures have sprung up organically, which means that you can't, it, it, in many ways, it's kind of all or nothing, you know, that's why, that's why people converted by fire and the sword. You know, they didn't, they didn't come and say, guys, it would be really great if you, the Romans didn't come in and say like, it would be really great if you, if you built some roads, you know, <laughs> because nobody's going to, because like, because nobody cares, right? Like if the, if the, if the Romans had like created some NGO, you know, 
road road building kiss you know road building a kiss of rome <laughs> and they're getting like government you know <laughs> they're getting gaius bucks or gaius <laughs> bucks to go to go build roads in Ger- like in 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 galatia or wherever the hell that was supposed to be somewhere in ireland or spain or romania yeah and and they like they go build it like no like, why would they care they're like we don't even have wheels right you know? there's a whole system that has to be introduced a, out of whole cloth whole, there's a whole system that has to be introduced out of whole cloth and we don't as humans we don't even understand ourselves well enough to break that down into any kind of coherent system really the only way to do it is to just come in and say i don't really understand why this works but you have to do all of this yeah yeah and, and, and that's that's sort of where the imperialism comes in you have to have the confidence in your own culture to say this is good this is good enough and doing it this way is important enough that i'm going to make you do it like you if you don't accept doing it this way then you simply can't be part of this community well and that's like the softest form like like this is america we speak english like you know we're not yeah. going to come to your country and and make you do it this way but like if you sneak under the barbed wire and come here uh yeah you you got to do it this way or else you can't have a job and yeah. and it, instead it's like well and I, you know basically the the idea of coming here to be american has has become not only not only is that not what they're doing, but it's like, it's offensive. It's offensive. It's, a, it's, it's disgusting it's, that you it, would it, even it, contemplate. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it, yeah. We, we encourage people not to do it. We just, we, we discourage them and it, we're doing, and this is where it's like, I mean, this is where it becomes kind of a, like a uniparty conspiracy theory, because it's like, why would you discourage them from doing like the only I mean, it's, it's almost like I have no evidence for this conspiracy other than it's like the only logical thing. <laughs> like Sherlock Holmes, who's like, well, I've eliminated every other dumb reason. So this must be what's happening. Yeah. You know, the, why, why would you discourage people from doing the one most important thing that will benefit them? And the only answer, like the only logical answer is so that you have a permanent underclass, right? And the left enjoys having a permanent underclass because those are their voters. And the right enjoys having a permanent underclass because of the, the profit margin. Yeah. I, well, and I think, I think you could almost, if, if you view it as a distributed problem where there's lots and lots of different stakeholders making independent choices in a particular direction. I mean, I've talked to lots of um, entrepreneurs, even guys who are, who are sort of believers in the kinds of things that we're talking about, um, you know, believers in like America should be a country (laughs) they're at this point where they're like you know I'd like America to be a country but it just isn't and Philippine labor is really cheap and you know so I'm just like I'm I'm not going to be the last sucker left holding the bag yeah yeah you have to compete right so this is this is something that um this is something I, I deal with on a, on a daily basis, right? Because I, I do believe that some of what goes on, um, and this is nothing, this is to say nothing of, of where I work specifically, but across all of these industries that are, you know, immigrant heavy labor, 
uh, immigrant heavy labor, there is a certain amount of exploitation to it, right? And it, it's somewhat exploitative. And in what way? Well, the 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 wages are poor, right? Like it's not a it's not a living wage, um, not remotely. And you know, I mean, any any warehouse job is. I mean, you got maybe you got two parents. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You you can't you can't raise a family if, with two people who pack boxes for fourteen hours a day. Sorry, for fourteen dollars an hour, or, you know, ten or twelve hours a day. I mean, right. I, I you know like government assistance or whatever, but um, you're not. I mean, it's going to be two or three generations before those people are not living in in something resembling squalor. Um, well, and I, it's I almost think that, like, I, I almost think that that if if you had, well, if this this is you know, wish casting, this is dreaming, but like the argument that I've heard against like the concept of a quote unquote living wage is that if you didn't have an endless supply of immigrant labor, adult immigrant labor, then essentially all of these, all of these, you know, not enough to live on jobs would be staffed by teenagers and they'd be making more because the labor market would be tighter. Um, but it probably still wouldn't be enough to like raise a family, but there would be a, there would be a, a class hierarchy that extends across time rather than across across people. So, like, th this is the dream, right? Everybody starts I, at the I bottom. Do, Everybody's packing think... boxes, and they sort into where they belong. Yeah, but <laughs> some people just simply aren't capable of a lot more, though. I mean, what do you, and what do you do with those people? Even people that were born in this country and raised in it. Some of them simply aren't made for a lot more. Again, unless unless one of the advantages of being American, you know, growing up in America is that you're one of the you know forty percent of people in this country that speaks English, and and that and that becomes like a huge asset. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, I I don't know what you do with people who are like permanently low skill. Yeah, uh, I mean, there, that's that's. That... I mean, you want to talk about an elephant in the room? I mean, that's it like so it, and i think i think we have an obligation i i feel an obligation to my fellow citizens to not you know it, there's i had an experience when i was a young man um that is this, this, this like this impacted me uh profoundly you know i was in college i was i was raised conservative and i was in college which means i was like de facto a libertarian right because i'm i'm cringe and i i think i know everything sure and mo most people grow out of it and a few people don't. And, uh, you know, I'm having this conversation. I'm quoting Scott Adams to a, a co-worker. I say, well, you know, Scott Adams says in the, uh, in the Dilbert future, he makes a joke saying that, you know, capitalism isn't the best system. It isn't the best system because it doesn't discriminate. Every system discriminates. It's the best system because it discriminates against the two groups least likely to complain stupid people and lazy people stupid people because they don't get know they're getting screwed and lazy people because uh protesting is too much like work right and i thought i was being <laughs> coy you know with this quote and he says my this, this friend of mine who was who was uh um left-leaning says to me well what are stupid people supposed to do just crawl in a hole and die 
And I felt like really <laughs> embarrassed because I was like, yeah, you're like, what am I, what am I supposed to do with my stupid co-citizens? You know, do yeah. I owe them any, do I owe them any less loyalty? And we, you know, we, we have, we have aggrandized IQ way beyond, way beyond its capabilities to solve problems. Right. Like IQ is, is useful, you know, but be, having a high IQ is useful, but it can't, it can't give you, it, I, I was, I was going to say it can't give you a good marriage, but I dare say it gives you a worse marriage. Least, I don't know, maybe not, but it, I mean, isn't like, aren't like therapy, like a psychiatrist, like psychologists, like the most likely profession to get divorced. It's like, these are the people who are the most expert in the human mind and they can't like get along with one other human mind. Well, I think it's just because they're wrong. Like, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily because, uh, knowing more hurts you i think it's because they know things that are not true yeah um, well, that, that, that's absolutely true they know so much that just isn't so and i, and, I, I and think it, yeah like i look at it like what so so I, i've had this wrestle on on iq for a while like it seems like the two camps are are like we need to pretend that's not real and so that's like, that's like your standard conservatives and liberals who are like, conservatives are going to pretend it's not real and it's all about hard work and it's all about like, you know, your bootstraps and everything. And liberals who are like, oh, IQ isn't real. It's all oppression. It's all systems of, of, uh, of oppression. And then on the other side of that argument, really all that exists is like, IQ is real and therefore we should sterilize all the morons. And... <laughs> Um, <laughs> and, and, and like, I, I'm like, I know that's not the answer. Um, and, and part of the reason why I think even the people who propound that don't really believe it is, and this is something that I, I've just, I haven't really like fleshed out or developed, but like they love dogs and, and they love dogs in this like admiring, respecting like way, like dogs are dogs are not just you know lovably stupid but like they have these virtues that are that are so so appealing and like you know you think about the the, the military dog that goes and 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 dies to save somebody and then they get a full military funeral with honors and all that stuff and <laughs> and like i'm thinking like so a dog is like way dumber than anybody anybody yeah um, but they have these virtues and they have these, and, and, and we respect their rights. Like we say a dog has a right to be treated a certain way. And yes. I think part of the reason that the relationship is so healthy is because it is honest. Like, yeah, nobody's bullshitting about what the dog's capabilities are. Nobody's expecting that dog to like go way outside of its lane. And, yeah. and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm comparing people to dogs because I'm a monster, but the, the, the point that I'm right. making is like, <laughs> the point that I'm making is like, if you can extend that level of honor and that level of respect and, and to, 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 to something that is dumber than any living human, then like, I, I feel like the differences between humans should not matter as much as it does on that axis for the people who yeah. are being realistic about this, who are like, I, okay, eyes wide open. We're not all the same. Uh, 
but like clearly we're more the same than we are to the dog you know so, this is yeah. something this is, you know this is something really really interesting because i i dealt with this when i was a a military officer right so there's certain requirements becoming a military officer you know you have to um and it's really anymore it's like you know you have to um have a certain level of integrity so well for, first of all it's a college degree right you have, you have to have a college degree which you know in the second world war of vietnam whenever they came up with this there weren't that many people you know the, the gi bill was still relatively new so it there weren't a lot of people in the military who already had college degrees there weren't a lot of people in the general population you know the college craze hadn't happened yeah so you know when it's a rarer thing that's like that's a marker of the upper class. You have a college degree, okay? Um, you can't get <laughs> you can't get waivers for an officer as easily. Like if you let's say have an assault charge or something, uh, sometimes you can get those waived if you're enlisted. Um, so you know it's just a little bit tougher to become an officer, and yet <clears throat> de jure, you know, on paper, none of these requirements is is insurmountable by anybody that i worked with who was enlisted and yet again it was it was really the sort of manner of growing up um the culture folks were raised in that had an enormous impact on whether or not they could actually meet these requirements and whether or not they were comfortable in that media and, and trust me like there was a ton of crossover i met some uh I met some enlisted guys, especially during the global war on terror, you know, when there were people who in 2001 and 2003 volunteered the Pat Tillman's of the world, right. Who had much sure. better options and enlisted out of the love of their country. Uh, and there were, there are some people that snuck in as officers who probably didn't necessarily belong there. Hell you might throw me in there. I don't know. But uh, what it's, what it seemed to me was there was just, there was still this, and this, I mean, this is going to, this is going to make me sound like I came out of a hundred, you know, like I got in a time machine from 200 years ago. It, there was like this natural divide between the way the officers carry themselves and the way the enlistment carry themselves. And the, the hierarchy is very explicit and everyone pretty much accepts it and they're okay with it. And there's almost, there's just very much this sense that like, this is how the world is. Some people are officers, some people are not. And, and it, you know, it's funny, there's, there's so many things that don't even operate our, along that axis, right? Like as a, as a, you know, as an O1, right, as a new officer in the military, uh, I wasn't, you know, I, the, the level of the amount of power, influence or respect that I commanded compared to, you know, someone who was like a command sergeant major or a you know, chief petty officer or whatever, like, those guys had a lot more experience, you know, all, all these other axes like experience, acumen, professionalism, just a little bit of age too, you know. Connections, uh, yeah. Connections and networks, right? All of these things they had in spades that I had nothing. And yet they called me sir and they saluted because that was that was like the that was just the milieu we were in. And I, I couldn't. I mean, it was just the most bizarre thing. Here's it. Here's an episode. Here's a really funny episode from it. We have this like government bureaucrat who comes to give us one of our yearly briefings on like God knows what. And I think it was about health. It was like we were supposed to, she was coming to tell us not to smoke and chew tobacco, LOL. Like why this even matters to the army is beyond me. But this lady comes 
and she's like hey uh who can tell me uh what the number one cause of death in america is and i shout out heart disease she's like that's correct i'm surprised that somebody knows it right and um she says who knows what the second most common cause of death in the united states is and my my buddy who's also an officer says cancer she's like that's also correct and one of the enlisted guys shouts out that's not fair they've been to college and I thought, <laughs> what, what the hell does going to college I, like i didn't get a nursing degree you know but but there's this sense that it's all part and parcel right that like having the self-discipline to not smoke and to know that that's going to kill you or at least or at least to care i assume at this point everybody knows you know um to care that it's going to kill you like somehow that somehow that correlates with a college degree and somehow that correlates with being a military officer not being enlisted and somehow that correlates with, with you know being able to own property that you that you know, it's like there's all these things that are like surrogates for something you know and and right now we're using IQ i think it's because it's it's safe you know it's super objective but honestly it's like not even as good as some of this other stuff but it, all these other things have already been you know so uh they're not rigorous right and so when you run into the disparate impact aspect of it the the implication the the explication is well these are racist you know these are systemic uh systemically racist artifacts from another society and i don't think that's true because this cuts across this cuts across race in the military you know uh, yes obviously that like that statistical reality exists uh, but it, it's it's way more than that you know and yet, yeah it's like yeah. there's no it, the military is the only place having extreme honesty because i can look at your chest and i know how much money you make you know i see i see the rank <laughs> and i know the salary. Yeah, i see your rank and i know your salary and i know who your boss is i know how much money your boss makes you know and it's like it, it's just it's so it's so out there like it's so out there in the open that it never even needs to be discussed you you beat it into people for like nine weeks when they're 18 years old and it's like i get it yeah <laughs> yeah i th there's yeah I, th I think one of the things that we're seeing is the hypocrisy of pretending that everybody's the same either in terms like like you know we're, we're looking at this uh this meritocratic elite that we're supposed to have and you go on twitter and you dunk on them because they're stupid like <laughs> like they're just really really stupid people um and 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 there's like a there's like a, a a hypocrisy about like oh these people are there because they deserve it because they got the credentials but at the same time there's also this like dishonesty about everybody everybody who's on the bottom uh deserves to be on the bottom or or but but it goes both ways right it's like if you're if you're if you're downscale whites if you're doing the fentanyl thing or you're doing the like the meth thing then like you are where you are because of character failings which is also why yeah. you voted for trump right you're a pillbilly um, and you deserve right it right um and then, and then so this 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 meritocratic argument just flips whenever they need it to for when it's one of their downtrodden classes 
And, and I think that hypocrisy is what causes people to reject the idea of, of egalitarianism or, or, or this pretense that we don't have class. And, and I think, yeah, it's so much more healthy. Like, and, and, and obviously like I, I know enough, um, enlisted guys to have heard their, their opinions about officers and, and how they kind of like, don't, don't know what they're talking about when it matters. And, and it, it's, it's actually very similar to the dialogue between like doctors and nurses. Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed this parallel, like nurses yeah, oh, are like, Oh, we do the real work. We really know what's going on. They're just, you know, whatever. Um, and, and there's, there's a very clear class divide there too, but just the acknowledgement of the hierarchy, even if it's not a perfect hierarchy, even if it's not perfectly meritocratic or, or based on intelligence or skill seems to me to be so much healthier than the pretense that there isn't a hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and we, you're, you're absolutely right. Like this, um, the, the fake meritocracy um, that, that elevates elevates the skill list right in in you know under the pretense that there's no class like you do start to get some truly incompetent people in there some of that's just class resentment right like that guy makes more money so i'm you know i would take my my smarter non-commissioned officers and um i would train them in a lot of tasks i'm like listen like if you understand what it is that i do and what i bring to the table then you can help me communicate why we're doing things the way we're doing them so that when there's like a last minute change or something it doesn't seem like this arbitrary whim there's there was probably a time when society was too much to the other way of of uh you know the underpinning of 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 classism so it's like yeah people can make bad decisions and they get away with it um you know, perfect right perfect example being uh you you, I, you know like the story behind the charge of the light brigade no, go ahead. So, the chart, you know, ours is not to question why, ours is but to do or die. They were ordered, they were supposed to be ordered to attack some artillery that was retreating. And because they, because there was no like sense of probity on the part of the soldiers executing the order, like the NCOs and the low and the junior officers, they were like, got my orders, I'm going. They didn't realize that the order had been miscommunicated, misinterpreted, and they attacked artillery that was had not moved head on but they were never they were never uh, ordered they, they weren't supposed to be you know doing that charge right so there is a point at which like implicit class structure is is bad because if there's no pushback whatsoever then well, and uh, i think you see that i think you see that in china and oh uh, yeah for sure i mean that's, sure. that's a big part of why things right don't Inco get solved and don't get seen yeah incompetent incompetence goes you know, goes unchecked when there's a, when there's no meritocracy, but if you pretend it's all meritocracy, you get the same problem in a different form where yeah. you get people, who, you get people who are selected for certain tasks that aren't necessarily the task actually being done or needed. Right. So and doctors, I think are a really good example, you know, our selection process for doctors selects for a certain kind of intelligence that's not the thing doctors do most day, most of the day in and day out, right? Yeah, the yeah. They're, your they're ability basically... to pass the MCAT, your ability to pass the MCAT, it only correlates so much with your ability to 
uh, you know, console a, a grieving parent or, yeah. or make a set or make a sound decision when you're watching someone bleed to death. Right. Yeah. That creative or, problem or the, solving. I mean, they're basically, they're, they're, they're educated. They're educated for a system in which search engines did not exist. And so the, the, a big part of their job is to be the search engine. And that a big, a, a big part of their training is to be the search engine, but like they can just go on Google now for a lot of that. And so these other sets of skills that they're not trained for become so much more important. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So this is, this is another hobby horse of mine. My, uh, my disbelief in, my disbelief in Asian, uh, Asian analytical supremacy. So we, <laughs> we, again, I think there's this paper tiger out there that we think that, um, these Asian countries are so, so far ahead of us in, in math and science. And I do think that there is some striving going on. They, there are some people who really do want their countries to succeed and have focused on STEM in a way that we ought to, and are not. Um, but I also think that it's a little bit of a a little bit of misdirection on the part of corporate America to bring in people for relatively simple tasks that don't actually require you know this, a lot of this higher level learning. But these cultures have you know they've uh, they've developed these education systems that get people to like rote memorize you know derivative you know you know, go, go to school, get married, learn differential calculus. Right. And so, uh, you like, yeah, you, like differential calculus is cool. And yeah, you have to have a, you have to have a certain IQ to be able to do it. But again, think of it this way. Like if the job, if the job is to create some sort of algorithm that is going to please the American consumer, What's more important, being being steeped in the culture of the American consumer, or like knowing how to write a VBA algorithm in Excel? Right, right. Like which and which of which of those is harder to learn? I think I, there's also there's also just an element of creative problem solving that that Americans, for whatever reason, uh, seem to excel at. And, uh, and that's, that's probably cultural because you don't necessarily, uh, see it in Europe. And I, I think, I think that that does have to do with this, like snowflakey, you know, uh, you're the protagonist of the universe <laughs> kind of, uh, mentality that we inculcate. Like there's, there's definitely, it's not something where you can just like take some other, it's like, just like you said, you can't take some other cultures solution to one particular problem and like patch it in um it's 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 it exists as part of a system so yeah i i, I think um th th there's definitely a, an element of a paper tiger there besides which i mean they cheat like oh, all, yeah, of these, all these exams that display this this uh, this tremendous analytical ability like all stats from china are the, the product of a communist regime and a confucian bureaucracy built on cheating Basically, I think I think a lot of stuff out of China is just sort of taken at face value that absolutely should not be taken at face value. Yeah, I agreed. Agreed. Well, you said you wanted to talk about beef. Beef as liberty. That's right. 
Yeah. <laughs> tell me about tell me about why beef is freedom. So you know, there were a couple. Of, it's too bad. There were a couple of times I could have segued into this. I didn't know. I, I was kind of waiting through the the alley oop from you. Um, so beef is liberty. Uh, I I once under you know in a, in a former life had a, a a Twitter account under my name John Taylor. Uh, where I had this epic thread. I think it had over a million interactions on it. So you know I'm Twitter famous. Whatever, no big deal. And uh, no, so I, I, I'd been, I read um, Inventing Freedom. So there's just been thoughts, there, there's some thoughts that are rolling around my th- head. Inventing Freedom um, by uh, Daniel Hannon and um, Great Tales from English History was another book that I had recently read at the time. But there, there's a lot of thoughts that just kind of uh, congealed in my head, which is, you know, beef. So beef's expensive, right? So first of all, let's back up and, and, and address the mayonnaise sandwich in the room. Right. There's this accusation thrown at Americans that we have we have no white Americans specifically that we have no culture. Right. You know, we're all we're all just mayonnaise sandwiches. Right. And the the contention of, of Daniel Hannon and a few other people who are willing to make this argument is. That um, Anglo culture is actually so much the culture of the world and the global market that nobody recognizes it for being uniquely American you know, um, Anglo-American, English and American, right? And one of the things he talks about it, like one of the examples he gives is like the the business suit, you know? Everybody who wants to be respectable wears a business suit. Well, the business suit, like when did that, you know, 200 years ago, people were in like, what do you call them? Like pantaloons, bloomers, like the, you know, Beethoven is like tight little stockings. I mean, that's like, like you've met people who met people who dressed like that, that it wasn't that long ago right so really old people know really maybe maybe like maybe three degrees moved at this point but it really wasn't that long ago that a business suit so what is a business suit well it's it's the class it's this it's the clothing of an english merchant and i don't know why it became popular amongst them but we all dress like middle class english merchants because that has become the world ideal for most people is to be middle class in the way that an anglo person is middle class right yeah but nobody's willing to give nobody's willing to give them credit for it so when you wear jeans or you wear a business suit uh or you listen to a violin or whatever no no one's willing to give uh anglos or or europeans more broadly credit for a lot of these things right uh so you see the same thing with you see the same thing with christianity Yes. Uh, yeah. Atheists will be like, oh, you know, I don't believe in any of that fairy tale nonsense. But also, you know, we're, we're all, all men are cre- accountability. Yeah, right. All men all are created people. equal, like all this yeah. stuff that's like very clearly Christian DNA. You just you took the parts that that you you turned into this universalized thing. Um, yeah. And you've said that th- those aren't Christianity. Those are just common sense. Um, but then you go to, you know. China or the Middle East, and you realize how idiosyncratic they are. Right. And you 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 ask them epistemologically, like how, like why, how did this happen? Why is this true? And and, you know, the answers are just like feeble. (laughs) You know, if you try to take if you try to take the the Christianity out of it, it's just like, well, we're all just like we're all just meat robots that suddenly realize that we're all created equal. 
mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's ludicrous. So, um, so part of that is part of that is beef. You know, beef was something that almost nobody in Europe could afford for a very long time. It's because cows, uh, you know, cattle require so much land so much grazing land compared to any other animal. I mean, every, every culture in the world has a chicken dish and it's because chickens eat, you know, garbage basically. Yeah. Uh, and they're, you know, they used to raise, they don't, they don't eat much, uh, but cows like require infrastructure. And so, you know, what is that infrastructure? That infrastructure is uh, private property, a large middle class, and like some kind of reasonable assurance against excessive taxation and bills of attainder, you know, just sort of unfair, you know, the way, you know, unfair targeting of the middle class by, by the ruling class. And England, you know, people, I, I guess the sort of consensus is that like capitalism sort of started in, with like Dutch traders or whatever, but, you know, England really jumped on this early on with English common law. Uh, you know, equality before the law, um, creating a, a system of precedent so that people can be treated equally, and uh, and then all you know, and then also these these private property protections. And so, you see beef take off in in England uh, a lot earlier than it did anywhere else, to the point where like America. I mean, think, this is one of the, one of the weirdest like. I, incongruencies in, in history that I, that I think of is like that joseph smith and uh, uh spoiler alert i'm a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints <laughs> joseph smith and beethoven were contemporaries or take somebody else right like from the t- same time maybe like Andrew that is Jackson. Weird. isn't that weird right yeah joseph smith he's like wearing wearing clothes that almost look like clothes you would wear to sunday church and then you've got like beethoven with his with his wig and his powdered face and you know right <laughs> they lived at the same time and so you have americans that like they have cowboys they have people who's literally they don't even own the land right they, they're not ranchers they just they make money yeah so they're so their only job is to like take cow like take cattle from one place to another meanwhile in europe it's like you know bessie the family cow can't die or we're all going to starve to death and that's direct that's a direct result from the fact that the peasantry in Europe didn't have what we would consider you know the civil rights or, or the individual sovereignty of private property and due process until well into the 1800s or what some a lot of them even into the 20th century and so England just became a much wealthier country because of English common law uh, much earlier and and beef is representative of of that system, the idea, you know, the French call the English les gros beef, right? And it's like, it's this sort of like pride looking up, you know, snooty, like, oh, they think they're better than us because they can ex- afford this expensive meat, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, England, because England adopted capitalism, and I, I don't even want to use that word because of like what we, what we act like it means today, like, you it's know, because now. we, it, well, not just not not the social st- the socialist stigma, but the fact that like capitalism, you know, free market economics is is actually something horrifying now. I think. Right. Uh, right. You know, but but like just just the the fact that you are allowed to own property and profit from it, uh, that uh, adopting that idea earlier than other Europeans made England a wealthy country earlier on, and it's not just gun germs and steel. Right? It's not just the fact that they're an island. It's not just the fact that they're isolated from 
from diseases and wars. It's the fact that they very eagerly gave at first their nobility and then later their lower nobility and then later their middle class um, the right you know, the, the right to keep private property and to profit from it. And so beef is this like really expensive, it's, it's this infrastructure heavy product that correlates with being a free and individually free people, not just self-ruling people, but an individually free people that can engage in, in, uh, in, com uh, uh, in commerce. You know, in the, in the seven or 1800s or 17 and 1800s in, in Britain, men belonged to uh, steakhouses like you would belong to a country club. <laughs> so we had some technical difficulties and now we're back. We were talking about beef as emblematic of the tradition of English liberty. Yeah. And I wonder if I wonder if the causality doesn't go the other way. Like because as as far as I can tell it, it's not necessarily the case that like the, the far-sighted English elites extended these protections and, and liberties to the gentry and then the middle class uh, because they, they had this vision of, 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 of capitalist uh, uh, freedom. M more so, it seems to have been the case that the, the money that was flowing in through English commerce and manufacturing made those classes powerful enough they could simply seize that from seize these liberties and demand these liberties from the ruling class. And I wanted to get your read on that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's, well, that's certainly the, the mythos of, of, uh, of the English, right? You know, uh, Magna Carta was signed at the point of a sword by the arguably universally, uh, wasn't it, was, it was Prince John, wasn't it? It was. The, the first time yeah so you know universally accepted as the worst english monarch of all time uh you know forced by his nobles to sign it i mean i'm not I, I maybe i'm maybe i'm misunderstanding the question you're saying that because they were wealthy they demanded freedom i mean i think that's i don't know that's very much that's very much the normicon approach to like global politics. Like, well, if we just make people free, if we make people rich, then they'll demand to be free. No, not necessarily um, that they that they were so rich that they wanted freedom, but that they were sufficiently rich that they had the power to demand freedom. As opposed, as opposed to all these liberties just making them, uh, as opposed to all these liberties just making them rich. Well, I don't know. I, it, it almost seems like a virtuous cycle. It seems like it compounds it's upon probably, itself. It probably is. I mean, I think I read somewhere that um, that the Anglo-Saxons had universal property rights, and it was like later the influence of of Rome that they did away with them. But I mean, I could be screwing up the timeline because when did the Anglo-Saxons invade England? Like really early on. Yeah, so that would have been like what 800, 800 AD. So maybe maybe it was the Celts. Anyway, who, but whoever was living in Britain when the Romans conquered, like had they had like universal property ownership. And the Romans came in and said, "No, no, no! O only men own property." Um, uh oh. So I don't know. I don't know quite how far back it goes. And I mean, not that like not that gender equality is even remotely a part of this. I I'm just saying. I, I I'm not sure I have a good answer to this question as to as to which came first or why. Yeah. I just, I, I, hate, I hate the deterministic 
I, I hate the deterministic approach that says, well, you know, the strictly economic you know, the factors. The, the, yeah, yeah, purely economic factors. Like, well, the Renaissance, you know, the Europe warmed up and that made them, you know, it made their, their, uh, their agriculture more productive and then they became sure. healthier and wealthier. I'm like, yes. However, there was also this guy named Jesus that told them you have to respect everyone. And that actually turns out to be a really effective way for running a society. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, I actually talked about this in my last podcast about um, the founding fathers and how essentially like liberal, not not egalitarianism, but 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 liberalism in terms of like, you know, affording everyone uh, equal protection under the law, et cetera, that these were things that they were reacting to their ruling class in much the same way that we are currently reacting to our ruling class. And like our, our ruling class pay, pays lip service to all of the things that they did, or like, or at least they, they used to, they used to pay lip service to all these things the founding fathers believed in, like, like liberalism and, and, and the rule of law and economic liberty but they've become the same kind of like entitled, unaccountable elite that 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 the founding fathers created all these institutions in reaction to. I think you can acknowledge that like those things have become corrupted and still be like, but they were they made a lot of sense at the time. And like they, yeah, yeah. they really were so better than the thing that was before. Yeah, so there's there's two points I want to make here, which is you know when I had my my epic Twitter thread, it, it, I sound like Uncle Rico talking about, you know how I almost made state because I I had a great tweet once. Um, you know, but you you said something that I thought was really interesting in in response to uh, what I what I had been saying when I when I published this thing, which was that the 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 neo react you know the the reactionary hatred of capitalism as such is really kind of foolish because what's being sold as capitalism is you know true true capitalism unlike communism has been tried and is really rad right and has like great results and so we're we're kind of like in the opposite of the true capitalism your true communism has never been tried like true capitalism has been tried and it's not what's going on you know uh you know all all the corporate welfare and all like the semi-private, semi-public institutions that just play by completely different rules and, and get all this, you know, they get all this funny money to to influence uh, elections and industries. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre and perverse and has, you know, is is not what, not what these men fought and died for, right? Yeah. Um, and like the fact that you're, the fact that you're disgusted by these people who pay lip service to it doesn't mean the thing in itself is bad. Yeah. So the the and the other thought, um, the other the second thought that I have here, that this is something I reflect on a lot, and I don't know what to make of it. We are almost exactly as far from our own American Revolution as the revolutionaries were from the English Civil War. Mm. And I, I'm trying to wrap my head around what precisely that means for us, because when the framers like when they, yeah, they, 
you know, it's like the, you know, the British are coming. Like, no, they said the regulars are coming because they still, they were still British themselves, you know, right. in all, in all of their writings, you know, were fight they were, they said they were defending their rights as Englishmen. And I, I just can't, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of this. The American revolution is, is so sacred to me, right? It's like the, it is the, it is the milk I was raised on by my father. The things I was taught to care about passionately. Yeah. So I don't know what to I don't know what to make of that other than there's these things that are profoundly part of who I am. And you're right, it's it's very much only the surface of um it's only the surface of of what is. You know, what is has the the image of it, right? The, you know, it's the <laughs> what I'm I'm borrowing the uh, the biblical phrase. Um an image of godliness, but denying the power thereof, right? We have yeah. an image of Americanism, but are denying the power thereof. I mean, we're literally, we slander everything they were, except the trappings, you know, the visual trappings of it. Um, yeah, and I think the fact that even that is going by the wayside, and we're, we're sort of uh, renegotiating and subverting, like, Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln, and, like, I, I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's very, very healthy because <laughs> yeah, they, they're divorcing themselves from the imagery so that we can see them for what they, what they are. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they, they can't hide behind those, those, uh, those coattails anymore. And I think, and going back to this point about, um, you know, which came first in terms of the tradition of Liberty, the reason that I, well, the reason I would like to believe that it has to do with, prosperity and the ability to demand freedom is that that's kind of what I'm trying to accomplish with my group. And what I'm trying to build is like people who have the means to say no. And, 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 and I think a lot of what has happened as the, uh, so-called frontier has closed is is basically our economic system has been captured to a point where people don't have that independent they don't have sovereignty over themselves economically and so they can be told what to do on that basis right and so so i i have this idea that if we can find those find those new frontiers, find the places where there's a lot of risk, but a lot of reward. We can find those places where there's opportunities to be seized. And, you know, it's just like, uh, it's just like in, 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 in the Americas, like they, a lot of these people were not necessarily, you know, the, the, the myth of them being like just farmers, like a lot of them were English aristocrats who came here and became American aristocrats. But there was a social mobility here that was not possible over there. And they did become an aristocracy unto themselves that wasn't dependent on the, the, economic and political and social system of England to survive. And that's why they were able to basically tell them to pound sand. And I, I think 
it's, it's probably time to start working on something like that again. You know, yeah. So, you know, and this is, this is just one, I think this is just one example of kind of what you're talking about is, you know, feudal European society was largely based on, you know, how much land you own, right? So you, you have like your little fiefdom and then you have an overlord who is steward of many fiefdoms. And then like the top Lord is the King who owns, you know, like personally owns the country. Right. So what do you do when you flood that market with, millions of acres of free land for the taking you just have to go out and fight the bears and indians for it well i think right. two things happen one you completely you completely abolish the relevance of that system right it just it's just no longer valuable in the same way and two you select for people depending on which system they prefer to live in you know and uh you, you, america for a very long time selected uh, it's immigration for a certain kind of person who want who wanted to go out there and make his own way. And I think, that, like you were saying, talking about you creatively solving problems. I think that goes a lot. A lot of you. Know, it says a lot about the individualism that drew people here. And you know, there's a in a in 2016 there was a there's someone who was criticizing the the white nationalists. Who were you know they were excited about Trump because they were saying yeah now we can you know now we can restrict immigration to like just European countries and the guy was like you don't get it like we already took all the good ones like your your modern European <laughs> is descended from people who were either powerful enough to remain in the aristocracy or content to be peasants they don't they don't understand why you should be allowed to own a machine gun they don't understand fuck you as an ideology like they <laughs> they, 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 they don't. They don't understand, you know, like the exit mentality of like, I just, I want to be left alone. And I, I, I am obsessively interested in finding the means to do so. And yeah. I think that's, that's part of the big danger of not demanding assimilation is, you know, it's not just, it's not just that one political side it is, you know, that everybody who works for me is on is on medic that their kids are on Medicaid and they get school lunches and stuff. You know, like that's a big part, like the voting block, like voting for the Gibbs is a huge part of the immigrant labor thing. But it, I, another huge danger of refusing to assimilate these people is the type of person we, we select for the type of person who wants to come here because of the, the, Gibbs. the, the because of the Gibbs. Right. And we're yeah. just we're just, we're we're selecting for a peasant class, and that's a little bit what I'm talking about when I say that you know, the silver lining is like the future is bright for anybody who is willing to be kind of an individualist American, but the future is much bleaker in the sense that um, you know there's there's somebody above you and there's somebody above that person, uh, and until until you're actually truly independent and free. Yeah, yeah, I. I... I've often wondered um, about how pacifist and and like arguably feminine most of the Scandinavian countries are, given their history. And I really believe the answer <laughs> is that all of the good ones came to England or or to southern Italy or to the Ukraine. Um, and they became the ruling class there. And everybody, like, there was... Oh, you're going, you're going back to, like, the Vikings and stuff. 
Oh yeah, no, but I'm but I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it to, to England as well. Like all the good Anglo's put on the pith helmet and they went to they went to you know the Zambezi or they went to Australia or 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 America and um and you can even see that in, in terms of the different cultures between like Canada and Australia and the US, like yeah. um because so many of like the if you came here, you know. They, they tried to do the indentured servitude thing and, and bring a lot of people here. Uh, but even the indentured ones, they were coming because they wanted to. Like, it, it, you know, their the power dynamics were complicated, but like they, they signed on the dotted line to come here and then we're supposed to work off their, their bus fare, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, you're right. Yeah. But like... The- like they were slaves here, but they, but they came here because they were like, I'm going to go be a slave to like, take this opportunity. And, and in Australia, it was much just, it was more like, you know, you're, you're just being transported here. Um, and I think there's, there's, there's definitely cultural and maybe even uh, biological selection effects at play there. There's two things, two things about that. One, uh, I thought where I thought you were going with the Scandinavian thing is, after at the after the end of the civil war when we reopened the frontier for settlement uh one third of scandinavia moved to the united states between 1865 and when when did they close the frontier officially like 1892 or 91 or something like that yeah uh, in that in that 40 in like that 30 or 40 year span of like the 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 western westward expansion one third of the population of scandinavia moved to the us that's what i thought you were going to uh, bring up well it's both but i think that it's both you're talking think, about like think, single you know, single shocking event you know that's it's huge yeah absolutely and and yeah i i, I totally agree that I think, I think we got the good ones <laughs> you know maybe or, you know, what, what i think is probably more likely you say it's like I, I think that in the short term yeah there's some like biological and biological maybe not the cultural i think is is obvious biological i would guess that there's probably something of a regression to the mean and what you're seeing is you see something that's kind of cyclical where you you basically have like these malcontents that go and do something and create something and and build build something and um and then their great 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 grandkids are like wow that's really cool what he did you know but i'd rather have the gibbs and and then and so, so then you have a like a you have a Gibbs society you know good times create weak men right um, yeah yeah you, know, you got kind of that cycle you got the the good you know good times great men or whatever cycle and uh, and so you've got just these periods of time where you just build up malcontents because the system is too much built for the weak men and the strong men are just either bored or unsatisfied or feel oppressed. And they just want to go somewhere where they are allowed to achieve their potential. And I, I don't know what they maybe right now that's like the moon. Yeah, you know, maybe uh, maybe Elon's going to lead like another American Renaissance. Yeah. Well, and I I, I think it's 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 entirely possible that that there's you know we would need to we need to conquer some some pretty steep technological barriers. But like I I almost think that it's it's technological in a different sense where like, like a lot of the problems that we're facing right now are not um, 
it's not literally the Stasi kicking in your door. It's these sort of underhanded tactics used to control people. And I think part of part of why the the establishment is so terrified of of disinformation, misinformation, um, people be people being allowed to talk to each other, basically. Like uh, I can't remember who I was talking to, but they were like, you know, what what is the fried? Oh, I think it was. So Dave Smith did like a comedy routine at the Tom Woods thing, but he said the system is so fragile that like they heard Elon Musk wanted to buy Twitter and let people talk to each other. And they were like, that will destroy democracy. Like that will, that will collapse the yeah. American system of government if, if people are allowed to talk to each other. And, um, and so I think, you know, I, I don't necessarily see it as like this, this system that is, is so powerful and so stable that the only way to defeat it is to escape it. I, and and I, I, there's like a branding issue there because we're called exit, right? But I, I, view, <laughs> I, view, the, I view the exit thing as, as tactical, you know? I view, it as, I view it as exit from the things in your life that are making you weaker, more vulnerable. It's yeah. about, it's about, you know, if, if you, if you're in a position of influence, stay in that position of influence, but the set of guys under the sound of my voice that are in positions of influence is, is pretty small. And, and, and the rest of us are, are pretty much just sort of being bossed around in exchange for a paycheck. And you can alter that arrangement. You can get to a place where you're, you know, um, some people have said there's no such thing as fuck you money. And I would amend that to say, um, you know, a, a rice farmer in Vietnam could have fuck you money and, and the CEO of a fortune 500 company cannot have it. And it's just a question of how bad do you want to say, fuck you? Like, what, <laughs> like, what are you willing to pay? <laughs> like, how 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 hard are you how hard are you trying to shoot the bird and and yeah. and it's so so like number one it's about finding that answer for yourself like what are you willing to sacrifice what are you willing to pay and then it's about how can i get the resources so that i can so that i can do that and uh so anyway it's it's uh it's it's an exciting time, I think, to be an American. It's you know you you yeah, get you know, the opportunity to 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 stick it to them. I think it's beautiful. You know, and, and there's there's something to be said. You know, there's there's a there's a there's a couple of things I think going on here. One is, um, you, you're right. Like this, the system is not as as stable as it's made to believe. I I think the stability of the system is in fact one of the trappings of the way things used to be that they no longer possess. You know, we talk about like the US economy. Like what is the US economy? Is the US, because it sounds to me like the US economy is something that when a war pops off in Ukraine, prices double here. That to me does not sound like the global juggernaut, you know, formerly the artist formerly known as the US economy. Right. 
so yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of weakness there because the more divorced their goals and aims and motives become from the populace, the more coercion is required. And that, that's like a giant coordination problem on their end. Right. It, it would remind and you know what? Again, I... Go ahead. So what it, really quick, what it reminds me of, and this is like, this is this thing that I've, I've been thinking about that I, I'm trying to wrap my head around is uh, sort of the impact of this English Civil War on our own revolution to understand how I think the revolution informs how we think of America today. Your Charles I and his, his um, well, not the, was it called the Long Parliament or the, I can't remember, but when Charles I dismissed Parliament for like years, the problem for him was that because he, he didn't want he, he didn't want them passing laws that went against what he wanted. Now the flip side of that is he couldn't raise taxes because it had been you know, clearly enshrined in English law that only Parliament can raise taxes. So he, he doesn't call a Parliament for like a long time, right? And the what he, the workaround was that in order to maintain a navy, which they felt was a like a a, you know, a constant security rather than like an army that you only raise in time of war it was expected that the king would always have a navy that's actually why it's the royal navy but it's the british army because it's parliament's army but it's the king's navy uh so the king was expected to always have a navy so there was like a special tax called ship money it was like this port tax tariff thing that the king controlled and that was like the one tax that the the crown controlled as opposed to parliament so he he did this like John Roberts like nexus of thought workaround to say well actually this tax applies to every you know like anybody who lives next to water um and it was like one of these one of these like infuriating events that when he finally does have to call back parliament back in because even after that he still runs out of money for the wars he's trying to fight um that he you know he ends up uh being accused of treason and it's because he was trying to fight a war that nobody but him wanted. You know, he wanted to get France back and, and nobody, like every regular Englishman, every English aristocrat, nobody wanted this war. And so eventually he was forced to exercise a system that no longer worked in his favor. And I think you're absolutely right that these, these are the opportunities we need to be looking for are like, where are the chinks in the armor? What are the systems that, this that this meta system that's actually kind of a a wounded bear depends on that actually we control right and like a lot yeah. of it's i think i think i think of a lot of it's like more local governance like getting involved in your community a yeah. lot of it is networking things like exit just knowing people uh who can help who can help the right kind of men stay stable um you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's probably yeah. better ideas or more ideas, but that's just that's just kind of a thought that's off the top of my head because it, at some point, at some point, the the bill will come due, right? Like at some point, these people will come, will will have to come back and either come back for our money or our votes or somehow curry our favor, or like George the Third, finally admit that it doesn't actually matter to them. Right. And either way, <laughs> either way, it's going to come to a head, and you know, the whole thing is going to get laid out for what it is. Yeah, that's that's what I see as as sort of the lesson of that um, story about King Charles is is they they were forced into increasingly absurd contortions to have to just admit like 
I don't care. Like, I don't, I don't actually care about the tradition of English liberty. I don't actually care about the rule of law. And you're seeing some of that with Trump and this January 6th thing. You're seeing like a, a lot of the contradictions that are being exposed there or the Epstein thing for that matter. Like you have this opportunity to press on them and say like, all right, but, but if you, this doesn't make sense under the assumption that you actually care about these things. And they're having to sort of admit that like, no, we don't actually care about these things, which, um, you know, so much for the tolerant left, right. Or like, here's, here's the the liberal hypocrisy. Imagine if the situation was reversed. Like I I get that that's, that there's a, an impotence to that. Um, if that's all you're doing, but, but like, for example, um, Chris Rufo, one of the things that he's doing that's really cool is he is, he is requiring them to put up or shut up like in terms of, in terms of parents are forcing their hand, parents are forcing them to come out and say like, oh no, we we think that your kids should read about sucking dick in school. Like that's, (laughs) that's what we actually, that's what we actually support and believe in. And, that's, that's um, actually, yeah, that, and that's more that's and that's more important to us than educating your child in the three R's. Right, right, exactly. And so it can be powerful. It's not all just you know running your mouth on Twitter. Um, and it can and, and I'll you know in defense of guys who run their mouth on Twitter, it can start there, right? Like that yeah. can be. I mean, you know, I, I sort of I sort of built the network that became this thing by running my mouth on Twitter. Um, you just can't stop there. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And we're making, we're making a difference. You know, it's, 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 we're, we're still small. We're still very much at this, like, uh, you know, throwing starfish back into the ocean thing. But I think <laughs> on that, like on that level, it does matter. Right. It, 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 it has to start somewhere. And I do think, I do think these cultural memes are important. Like, and the reason is it, like I was saying earlier about, um, you know, marker markers of you know cultural markers that sort of encapsulate a lot of difficult to quantify phenomena. Beef is still more expensive than pretty much any like a, a pretty much any other meat, right? Than any and then any other meat because of the nature of it. And so, like when we have these aggregation of like really stupid policies that make gas too expensive and make food too expensive and lower, you know, lower your wages because of inflation. And like all of a sudden people are like, I can't buy a friggin' hamburger. Like that's, it's like, the, it's like the deep lore of America has been wounded. And it, in a way that you may not yeah. even be able to articulate, but it's like, I ought to be able to buy a damn hamburger, you know? And you can't like, why, <laughs> why does that even matter to you? And like, and your average, your average American isn't like, well, I'm going to draw back to Magna Carta and Charles the first and, and like, but like, but it's there, right? Like it really, it, sure. it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's the tapestry of history that like manifests itself in, in cultural ideas. And I think that, I do think that like the memeing, the memeing matters, right? Like I, I refuse to eat the bug burger. Well, it's not, it's, it's obviously, it's a proxy for all of these other things that can be difficult to articulate to people. But if you just tell the average guy, like you're not a man, if you eat a bug burger and you know it and you, and you know, you shouldn't have to eat a bug burger to survive. Like you should make enough money. Your job should pay you enough to not eat bug burgers. 
the average guy is like, hell yeah, I get it. And all, and all, all this other stuff that they may not understand, but it is, is the culture and the natural rights that they've inherited, they do understand in a, in a visceral way. Yeah, yeah. You, um, they just want to grill. Fundamentally. <laughs> they... <laughs> I literally just want to grill, you know? Yeah. And, and, and you have to explain to somebody who just wants to grill that like, well, the fact that you get to grill depends on like property rights and <laughs> yeah. like there, there's this deep infrastructure behind your ability to grill. And so you might have to fight for this bigger thing in order to continue grilling. Um, I, say, I guess that's the, the large, the larger fight is, is getting people to understand it that way rather than like, you know, I should vote for the guy who's got, you know, who's going to give me the, you know, the federal grilling subsidy gives and, and we're going to, we're going to print even more money so that we can have the facade of the right to grill. Yeah. Have you, have you read, um, have you read age of entitlement? I assume you have. Not yet. Oh man. Okay. Top of list, dude. That's a great one. But he so talks I, I about read, I read, uh, the revolution in Europe and that informed a lot of the things that I've talked about. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so, Age of Entitlement, he talks about how Reaganism basically involved this, this massive deficit spending to paper over the contradictions created by the Civil Rights Act. And, yeah. um, and, and it, it's very much in the vein of that, like, uh, federal grilling subsidy. Like, let's just, uh, let's just keep pumping, uh, you know, fake stimulus into into this this yeah, beast yeah, yeah. so that we don't have to deal with the contradictions you know people people are you know what's that what's that chart where like real wages diverge from uh real wages diverge from like productivity productivity yeah like what what's the year that everybody's it's like 1971 or something when like yeah america is totally haywire so yeah, so that's a perfect example of like you have the, you know, you you have all this deficit spending so that people can live the American dream of affording a house. Housing is not affordable, has not been for a very long time, but we kind of yeah, like you said, papered over it for a while, and we and at various various and sundry times since have continued to do the same thing. Yeah, and I I think that creates again opportunities. We are, we are not in a stable equilibrium with them on the top and us on the bottom. Like, you got to view this volatility as opportunity. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a great time to be an American. But um, I want to I let you uh, 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 get back to, to work. But John, John is an exit member. And uh, if you want to meet guys like John, and, and there's a bunch of them. It's smart people in this group. If you want to meet guys like John, come check us out at exitgroup.us. Uh, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks.